Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Tonight we're going to continue in our journey through Ecclesiastes, so please open to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Right after Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. I don't know about your Bible. My Bible has uh, headings like for different thoughts within the chapters. So... I look at my Bible here, and it's uh, for chapter 6. It says, no satisfaction in wealth, no satisfaction in children, no satisfaction in labor, and no satisfaction in the future. <laughs> Fortunately, we're going to do two chapters tonight, so we won't leave you there because uh, chapter 7 gives us uh, some hope for some of those things that Solomon questions in chapter 6. As we come along Solomon in his continual search for the meaning of life, we again arrive at a mystery, and we've seen these come up over and over throughout this book. Solomon struggles to solve a lot of these mysteries. Some he solves and some he doesn't by the end of the book. Um, This one is under the sun, which is his term, that we see repeated over and over again, meaning basically life in this, this plane, uh, not, not heavenly-minded, not godly-minded, but life in the uh, horizontal. Under the sun, we may acquire health, wealth, fame, fortune, but most times it doesn't satisfy. Why is that? We may strive to achieve, may, we may strive to obtain, but then, you know, we've got to strive to maintain, right? So th- it, it never satisfies. And, again, I'm going to point out that a lot of times in this book, um, Solomon's observations are quite correct. Um, it's, sometimes it's his, his uh, state of mind, I think, when he comes upon these things throughout his life that, and the lack of answers that he finds that leaves him empty. So we're going to jump right in because we've got a lot of verses to cover in these two chapters. And in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, it says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun and is common to among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. He writes about this a lot of times throughout this book, and I, I came across this story. I had known this short story by Leo Tolstoy before, but... Um, I think it applies well, and I'm not going to obviously read the whole thing. I'm just going to give us a synopsis of it because I think it tells the story of what 
Solomon's talking about here and what he talks about in many different places in this book. He, uh, Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? Say that three times fast. How Much Land Does a Man Need? This story focuses on uh, um, a peasant named Packham who lives in a, a very humble existence. As the story opens, he becomes fixated on the idea that his life would be perfect if only he owned more land. He thinks to himself that if he had plenty of land, he would have nothing to fear, not even the devil himself. However, unbeknownst to him, Satan was in the house watching him and overhears his thoughts. A short time later, a landlady in the village decides to sell her estate. Packham scrapes together enough money to purchase a small parcel of land. By diligently working on the extra land, Packham is able to reap enough extra money to live a more comfortable existence. He works hard, he buys and sells a lot of fertile land, and he builds his fortune even further. Soon he's introduced to a local indigenous group called the Backshears. He learns that they are simple people, and they own a lot of land. He approaches them and negotiates with them to buy a parcel of their land. However, the Backshears' offer is quite unusual. They tell him that for 1,000 rubles, he can walk around as large an area as he wants, starting at daybreak, and mark his route with a spade. If he returns to his starting point by sunset, he gets all the land that he's marked. However, if he doesn't reach back to his starting point, he loses the money and he gets no land. So Packham is delighted. He believes that this is going to be easy money, and he thinks that he's getting the bargain of a lifetime from these simple people. However, the night before he goes out on this task, he, he experiences a hor horrible dream in which he sees himself lying dead on the ground with the devil laughing over his corpse. Well, the next day he heads out to mark the land and stays out as late as possible until just before the sun sets. As he sees the sun setting, he realizes that he's far from the starting point and breaks into a run to hurry back. He arrives back at the starting point just as the sun sets, and the Bashers congratulate him. Suddenly, exhausted from his run, his heart gives out, and he drops dead right in front of the landowner's. His obsession eventually consumed him. In his lust for land, he loses everything that actually mattered in his life. Satan decided that he would give Packham everything he wanted, but then snatch it away from him. Tolstoy's ending goes like this. Ah, what a fine fellow, exclaimed the chief. He has gained much land. Packham's servant came running up and tried to raise him, but he saw that blood was flowing from his mouth. Packham was dead. The Backshires clicked their tongues to show their pity. His servant picked up the spade that he used to mark the land all along the route and dug a grave long enough for Packham to lie in and buried him in it. In the end, six feet from his head to his heels was all the land he needed. We can hustle, we can bargain, 
we can wheel and deal our way to the world's definition of success. But in the end, what have we really gained? And really, uh, I think a better question to ask, what have we lost? It says in Mark 8.36, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his own soul? We must always be wary of putting material things in such a significant position in our lives that we become careless to Satan's schemes. Remember, he's always looking for ways to take us down. And we don't want to make it easy for him. So it's a very difficult lesson that uh, Solomon is teaching us, but an important one. Moving on in Ecclesiastes 6, Verse 3, it says, If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he, for it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun nor known anything, this has more rest than that man even if he lives a thousand years twice but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. The next observation from Solomon is based on this hypothetical exaggeration. You know, no one's going to live 2,000 years, and I don't know if anybody's ever had 100 children, but even if they could, imagine all they would attain in all those years. Yet if they couldn't enjoy it, wouldn't that be just empty? Wouldn't that be futile or vanity of vanities, as Solomon would say? To an Old Testament Jew, abundant riches, long life, and a large family were marks of God's blessings upon their life. But for some reason, this hypothetical man didn't have the love of his family or the opportunity to enjoy those blessings. I think that's the most important thing that we enjoy whatever God's given to us. The ability to enjoy and appreciate life comes from a person's state of mind. It's not about how much someone has outwardly, but it's, about, it's their attitude. It's what do you consider most important in your life. The Apostle Paul uh, spoke about this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned that whatever, in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. The Apostle Paul was very clear that whether in abundance or in need, he would be content, because the Lord was behind everything that he possessed. Solomon used some very descriptive language to get his point across. A man might labor for riches, but had no enjoyment of his abundance. He wasn't even remembered when he died. And in most cultures, especially the Jewish culture, to it's considered disrespectful to the person if they weren't given a proper burial. So the question would be, would it be a blessing if someone lives 2,000 years, or would it be a curse? I guess, like many things, it depends on your perspective. 
Like the Apostle Paul, we would be better off being content with our circumstances no matter what they are. And it's been asked, if we can't accept our lot in life, how will it help to have a lot more life? It won't. We need to be content with what we have. Solomon goes on to speak about the paradox of hard work without fulfillment. In verse 7, he says, All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have? Who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Whether rich or poor, people must labor to obtain the food just to stay alive, really. There's no difference between the two. The problem that Solomon sees is the motivation of some people for what they labor for. Is it just to eat in order to survive? Or is it to fulfill a greater purpose? You know, God has a greater purpose for all of us. What are you laboring for? What are you going out and working for? Is it to just survive or to get bigger things? Or is it to fulfill God's purpose in your life? The Bible warns us about being controlled by our fleshly appetites. In Mark 8.35 it says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. That means we have a God-given plan and purpose for our lives. We should be seeking that out, that out and desiring to fulfill it. It should always be about glorifying God, not satisfying our own desires. Verses 10 through 12, Solomon struggles over the idea of questions that he can't answer. And I think a lot of us might do that too. You know, there are just some things, um, whether it, it has to do with God, the Bible, some things we just, we can't wrap our brains around. And sometimes we struggle uh, with those things. Uh, Solomon did the same thing. In verse 10 he says, Whatever one is, he has been named already. For it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life which he, pa which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Solomon here correctly realizes that there, there are many things in life that we won't understand, especially about God. And he's already planned our days out, so we really shouldn't fight against him. And I know some people are, might be uncomfortable with that thought, with not knowing, with some things that we can't figure out, questions that we don't have answers to. But we can't wrestle with God and win. He, he is mightier than us, it says in verse 10. So instead of questioning God, we're better off accepting his gift of life and glorifying him for it. The answer to the questions that Solomon asks in verse 12 is simple. It's God. God knows what's good for us. 
God knows what will come next in our lives. And we need to just rest in that. Chapter 7 goes on and kind of expounds on that answer that Solomon finally got to at the end of uh, chapter 6. Who knows what is good for man in life and who can tell a man uh, what will happen after him under the sun? God knows what's good for man. And it's through the wisdom that he imparts to us through the scriptures that we can begin to understand and enjoy life. So moving on into chapter 7, and we'll notice that this chapter, if you were with us through the Proverbs or you're familiar with the Proverbs, this will sound like uh, the book of Proverbs because this is written in that style. So Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 4, it says, A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. And the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So, just to clarify here, it's important to understand what Solomon is not saying in these verses, as well as what he is saying. He's not saying that it's better to die than to be born. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that on the day of a person's death, their legacy has been established. Nothing can be added. Whatever happened between the time he was born and the time he dies will be, would be etched in stone on that day. All that's left behind after that is his reputation. All that's left behind is his reputation. Now, he may leave riches and wealth and material things, but really the most important thing is your legacy, your reputation. So that's why he says the day of someone's death is actually better than their birth. It tells the story of who that person really is. And he also points out, and we as pastors know this, the significance of a funeral service because we know that there's sometimes there's a profound impact that that can have on people who attend those services. You know, a lot of times people don't face death until they go to a funeral. And then they start to consider these things. Life's meaning becomes clearer sometimes when we're faced with our own mortality. And a lot of times that that happens at a funeral service. So we know that people are are touched, are changed. We've seen people receive the Lord at funeral services because they start to think about these serious things in their life where most of the time they don't. Verses 5 and 6 It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This is also vanity. So we we all will agree with Solomon. This This is kind of where he's on the money, that we learn a lot more about ourselves through rebuke than we do through praise. 
rebuke by a wise and respected person in our life can really go far in helping us grow. We should understand that if someone's in our life that we've uh, had a, we have a relationship with and they are willing to uh, come beside us and show us those things that, um, that will help us grow, that we should really appreciate that. We should learn from that. Because people can praise us day, all day long, but we're not going to learn much about ourselves from that. Praise may actually hold us back, thinking we're good, thinking we're okay, right? And having no need to maybe reevaluate our lives. Sometimes praise can have the opposite effect. Solomon repeats this or says this in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. He says, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. So kind of blunt there. So it's kind of the same thing that, you know, we learn a lot more with people that um, will come beside us and tell us those things. Moving on, verses 7 through 9. He says, Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient spirit is patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. So Solomon is wisely telling us that often the easy way is the way of fools. Often the the simple path is the path of destruction. Jesus told us that in Matthew 7:13, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way. You know, when you see a nice, wide, broad road, it looks like an easy uh, journey. The narrow road looks more difficult. But he says here, the wide gate and the broad way is the one that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. So don't be fooled by the easy way out. A lot of times God wants to show us the more difficult way in order for us to grow and to learn more about what he wants for our lives. Verse 10, it says, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For, for you do not inquire wisely concerning this. So Solomon continues here giving us wisdom concerning our view of life. Because sometimes we can long for the good old days, right? But many times our remembrance of the good old days is a little clouded. And I thought of the children of Israel, you know, in the wilderness and how many times they complained and complained to Moses about what he was doing with them. And in in Numbers 11, this account just kind of gives us this same feeling that Solomon is saying in verses 4 through 6 in in chapter 11. It says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember, see this is the good old days, we remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is is dried up. 
There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now remember, the manna was God's provision for the children of Israel. It was from God. And they look back at their time in Egypt. And I love the wording of that because it says we, f- we ate freely in Egypt. And well, they may have had cucumbers, melons, leeks, and onions, and garlic, but they forgot one important thing. They weren't free. They were in slavery in Egypt. See, we can't let a mistaken view of the past cause us to overlook the present work that the Lord is doing in our life. Because it may be that this is where exactly where God's going to do a great work. And you may look to the past and longingly remember it. But it might not be what God wants for you. Solomon goes on, continuing to show us how godly wisdom, when applied to our lives, helps us see things from a godly perspective. In verse 11 and 12, it says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Wisdom, wisdom, more valuable than riches, more valuable than money. Money can lose value. Money can be lost. Money can be stolen. Whereas wisdom lasts forever. Wisdom lasts forever. All we need to do is apply it to our lives. Verse 13, consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? So, again, Solomon tells us here, we can't fight with God. We can't fight with his ways. He knows what's best for us. Now, we may not be able to see it clearly, but he always knows what's best. Consider what God is doing in your life. It may not seem logical. It may not seem to make sense to you. But that's only from your perspective. Believe that God knows best and that he knows what he's doing in your life. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Again, something else that the wisdom of God does for us. It gives us the perspective that whether we're in prosperity or adversity, they both have been filtered through God's divine knowledge. And he gives us both, prosperity and adversity, for a purpose. For a purpose that we may not understand at the time, that we may not even agree with at the time, But God has a plan for both prosperity and adversity. But notice in verse 14, Solomon says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, which is appropriate. Everything's going well, you know, whether it's uh, financially or just relationship-wise. You're prospering. Praise the Lord. Be joyful in that. But in the day of adversity, what? Consider. Consider. What does that mean? Be thoughtful. Think about the adversity that you're going through and why God may be 
putting that in your life? And what does he want to teach you through that? So that's really good wisdom from, uh, from Solomon. Verses 15 through 18 says, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes, perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this. Also, do not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. And I love that final line. He who fears God will escape them all. Remember he wrote earlier in a couple of different places, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Fearing God, honoring God, giving him the respect that he's due. But here Solomon is seeing life under the sun, right? Those who live for themselves might be flourishing, might be doing really well. You can look at somebody and they're self-centered, they're self-motivated. They don't give to others and they seem to be doing great. And sometimes the follower of Christ is suffering. But remember, that's only in this temporal life. That's only seeing things, right? What? Under the sun. Horizontally. God will always make things right. In verse 16 there it says, Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Well, Paul writes in Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, no, not one. So I had to consider there, if Solomon was saying to be only partially righteous, you know, moderately. You do everything in moderation, so to speak. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's talking here about self-righteousness. Don't be overly self-righteous. See, our righteousness comes from a relationship with Jesus. He imparts his righteousness to us when we believe in him. So don't be self-righteous. And he's not telling us either here to be only moderately wise because he imparts wisdom to us. You seek him for wisdom, he's going to give it to you. He's telling us not to count on our own wisdom, not to look in ourselves for all the answers. Very wise. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So we should gain as much wisdom as we can from the Lord. There's no limit on that. But we should limit our own wisdom. And we should seek to, obviously, uh, the Bible says, Be holy, for I am holy, God says. We should seek to walk righteously, uh, pleasing God in everything we do. But we should not be self-righteous. Verse 19 and 20 says, Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. We know that. But God's wisdom will strengthen us, won't it? God's wisdom will strengthen us when we face life's 
battles, when we come upon troubles. Because God's wisdom gives us confidence in the Lord, right? To face any challenge that life can throw at us. As well as the strength to resist the temptations of Satan. Neither of those things should we face on our own. Should we try to handle on our own. It's only by God's wisdom that we can be strong in those things. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, right? And in the power of His might. That's where we gain our strength from. From a relationship with God. And then moving on, verses 21 and 22. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. So, how many people have had others talk about them? It's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. People are going to talk about you. People are going to say things about you. Don't be shocked when it happens. But ultimately, isn't it really more important about what God thinks than what others think? Charles Spurgeon told his Bible students to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. I think that's good advice. That's good counsel. Probably half of what people say about you, you should take to heart. The rest you can probably ignore. But this isn't out of arrogance. Solomon's really careful here that he doesn't want you to think, well, that, that nobody has anything to say to you of any importance or any significance. It's not out of arrogance. Why? Because we could fall into that same trap, can't we? Can't we sometimes um, talk about others or think, um, think negatively about other people and say things that might be hurtful? So we have to remember that, um, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10:12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It could be us. We need to be careful about that. But don't, don't take it to heart too much when people talk about you. I know Pastor Joe mentioned the other day, and I remember this same thing from our old pastor who's, who gave us the sticky note uh, example. When people throw sticky notes on, at you, you know, shake, and whatever falls off, you let go. Whatever sticks, you deal with. Because some of those things you might have to deal with. Solomon goes on here <coughs> to remind us that no one can completely figure out God. And we, we kind of know that, although we try to sometimes. All this I've proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even the foolishness, even of foolishness and madness. Sometimes, sometimes it's best for us to leave the unanswered questions unanswered. Sometimes it's best to leave those things just in God's hands and not become, become overwhelmed with some of the things that we don't quite understand. And I have three verses here um, that kind of give us a picture of that. 
In Psalm 145, verse 3, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. In Job 26.14, it says, Indeed, these are mere, the mere edges of His ways, and how small a whisper we hear of Him, but the thunder of His power, who can understand? We can only really grasp a very small amount of who God really is. We don't get it all. And in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Although he is incomprehensible, he certainly is knowable to an extent, and he desires for us to gain knowledge of who he is. The scriptures reveal his character. The scriptures reveal his plan of salvation for mankind. And in relationship with God, he will reveal more and more personally to you about his plan for your life. So God definitely encourages us to seek him, but he will not be completely understood on this side of eternity. And then Solomon closes here in these verses with a picture into kind of the sinfulness of humanity and the schemes of the devil. It says in verses 26 through 29, And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here is what I have found, said the preacher. This is speaking of Solomon. Adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul still seeks but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all those, all these I have not found. Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You know, it's not an accident, I don't think, that, that Solomon closes with this thought because he's encouraging us throughout this entire chapter to seek God's wisdom, isn't he? And now we see this, the, real, the real reason why. I mean, apart from just living uh, a righteous life and actually, you know, a lot of times God's wisdom will just give us the right things to do in the right circumstances. Um, God's wisdom will also help us resist the temptation of the enemy. We can't defeat him on our own. We need God's wisdom. We need the Holy Spirit empowering us and working in us, right, in order to live upright lives, in order to resist those temptations that will come in and to live and glorify God in everything. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. 
You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.